this morning in this worship service, there are angels here. You say, I don't see any. They're here. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that when the church gathers, angels come. They're observing your worship today. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the daily Bible teaching of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are studying the Revelation, a book whose primary focus is the Lord Jesus Christ. The majority of this book is prophetic and deals with the days following the rapture of the church. Immediately following the rapture, or catching up into heaven of God's people, there will be a seven-year period known as the Tribulation, which will be marked by a series of cataclysmic events. These are prophesied through a series of judgments which we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks. We saw the first of these judgments are delivered by men riding on horses. This is how the four horsemen of the apocalypse are known. And these horsemen are the Antichrist, war, famine, and ultimately death. The next revelation shows a time of martyrdom where people who come to faith during the tribulation will be quickly martyred. Then the sixth judgment is a time of terror unlike anything ever before experienced. As we move into chapter 7 today, Dr. Brogy is going to explain the important role Israel will be playing during the time of tribulation, which precedes the return of Jesus Christ. Would you take God's word this morning and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 7. We're working our way chapter by chapter through this great book, and today we come to the seventh chapter, and the message of the morning is Israel front and center. This is such a relevant book in human history, especially as it relates to the nation of Israel in the day that we find ourselves. The time frame that you see in the Revelation is being set in the very day in which we live. So many of the pieces of the puzzle are coming together. Think about it. Many people sitting in this room this morning, during your lifetime, you saw the fulfillment of a prophecy where Israel would be reborn as a nation and God would begin to gather the Jewish people from across the planet. He is doing that in our day. We saw not only the rebirth of Israel, many of you have witnessed the rise of Russia to the status of a world power, especially as it relates to the Middle East, very significant prophetically. You've seen the rise of a number of European nations as they've come together to form a sort of United Nations of Europe, United States of Europe. Uh, And indeed, that will be refined further as time goes on. We've seen the rise of a sodomite culture that is spreading like wildfire. These are all things that God said would happen at the end of time. It's like a big jigsaw puzzle coming together. I want to begin by reading our text of Scripture. This morning is foundational to the rest of the chapter. We're not going to go through the whole chapter, but your understanding of the first eight verses is critical, not only to chapter 7, but some of the chapters that will immediately follow. So pay close attention. Revelation 7, beginning now in verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees 
until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now, most of you know that the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. The word rapture, some would say, is not in the Bible. Therefore, it's not a biblical doctrine. Well, logically, you'd have to say the same of the Trinity because the Trinity, the word Trinity is not found anywhere in the Scripture. But God affirms, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. And yet the Trinitarian nature of God is affirmed in the opening chapters of Scripture. Let us, not me, let us make man in our image. The word rapture actually is found in the Bible. It's found in the Latin Bible that was used exclusively by Christians for nearly a thousand years. And so many of our terms, as on the stained glass and the pulpit in front of you, come from the Latin Scriptures, from the language itself. And so, rapto comes into English as rapture. It's harpazo in Greek. It means to be caught up. It's described in John 14. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I won't come to where you are, but you will come where I am. That's the rapture of the church, distinctly different from the second coming. It's also elucidated in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4. In a moment's time, it will be an absolutely breathtaking event. Millions of born-again Christians across the planet will be missing. We saw that door opened in heaven in Revelation 4.1. We saw the 24 elders, 24 being a representative number in the Bible of a large group of people. 24 elders representing the church, distinctly different from the people of Israel, from angels. They represent the church, the body of Christ. And so what will happen after the church is caught up is the worst time in human history we have ever seen. Jesus said, if the days were not cut short, no one would survive. Those days will begin to unfold. We're not there yet, but those days will come. You say, you're a pessimist. I'm not a pessimist. I'm an optimist because I recognize on the other side of the great tribulation comes the millennial reign of the Messiah and then indeed the eternal state that we will enjoy with our Savior. But I am a biblicist because God said what he meant, he meant what he said, and he is going to do everything recorded. And so in the fourth chapter, the rapture, and the saints of God worshiping around the throne. In Revelation 5, we saw a question that is asked, who is worthy to open the scroll? And the answer was, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And so Jesus in the sixth chapter begins to unfold the scroll point by point, and God's judgments begin upon the earth. It's an incredibly difficult time to be alive, but that is only the start of what is going to happen. And we saw in Revelation 6, six sealed judgments 
that perfectly parallel what Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse when he brought Peter, James, John, and Andrew on that mountain, those four disciples, and they asked him about the magnificence of the temple. He said, actually, one stone won't stand upon another, and then let me give you a bigger picture, and he did. He gave a short-range prophecy that was fulfilled in 70 AD, and then he looked down the carters of time. Here on this chart, you can see how God unfolded these truths. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 4, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am Christ, I am the Messiah, and they'll mislead many. So with the church having been gone into heaven, deceivers will come, multiplicity of deceivers, and the epitome of all deceivers will be the Antichrist himself. And so the first horseman parallels this statement that Jesus makes. He comes on a white horse. Then Jesus said, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For these things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So the second seal is broken. The red horse of war comes. And it's an unparalleled time in human history. Wars across the planet, they are so prevalent, rumored on everyone's lips as there is another war yet to come. And then the third seal is broken. Jesus said in various places, there will be famine. And that's what the black horse of famine brought as we discovered the hunger that was accompanied with his ride. Then the fourth horseman came on a pale or an ashen horse, which represents worldwide pestilence and death. And the fourth seal corresponds perfectly to what Jesus recorded uh, or was recorded of him in Matthew and Luke's gospel. Jesus said this, and in various places there will be earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So Luke and Matthew underscore earthquakes, Jesus, uh, Luke, pestilence and disease as well. But they're just the birth pangs. The birth pangs haven't started yet. These are all events that take place in the first half of the tribulation. But there's an incredibly number of things, number of things that are happening in our day that allows you to recognize the pregnancies here. But the birth pangs do not kick in until the church is gone. Then the water breaks and trouble begins. Then in relation to the fifth seal, Jesus said, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. That's almost identical to what we read in Revelation chapter 6. And then Jesus adds, but the one who endures to the end, he'll be saved. And again, when this seal is broken in the Revelation, we see their testimony is maintained. They continue on. They persevere even in the face of death and many are beheaded. The Bible does not teach salvation by works, and therefore it does not teach salvation by perseverance. Yet Jesus says the one who endures to the end will be saved, because he knows that if you are saved, you will persevere. Perseverance is a genuine fruit of true conversion. A true child of God will never renounce Jesus Christ once the second birth has happened. But if we are saved, again, we will be willing, if necessary, to die for Christ. People say, what about Peter? That was pre-Pentecost. We're living on this side of the cross, and Peter's life was ultimately threatened. He said, I don't deserve, at least tradition says, to be crucified like my Savior, and so they crucified him upside down. Now, the phenomena in the sixth seal are not directly mentioned in terms of the moon being turned to a color like blood, where the sun is darkened and the stars 
Esther fall to the earth, and we saw what that meant and what it didn't mean. And I think Jesus wisely doesn't mention it here at this point in the Olivet Discourse because there's a number of times during the seven years where you see phenomena in the heavens. In fact, in a general way, he does refer to it in that he says there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But I don't think he wants to confuse us because we will see with the, bold, uh, with the uh, trumpet judgments, a third of the sun being darkened and so forth, and, and the ultimate blood moon and darkening of the sun happens right before the second coming. But then that brought us to uh, the words of Jesus where he said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And of course, that brings us to where we are today. We're going to see 144,000 people who are going to be evangelists, who are going to preach the gospel, and the whole world will hear about Jesus. Now, sometimes you'll hear a Christian say, well, Jesus can't return until the Bible's fully translated and every person on the earth has an opportunity to hear about his, his, uh, God's Son. That's not true. Nothing prophetically has ever needed to happen for the rapture of the church to happen. Now, it is true that Jesus said the gospel will be preached to the entire world before the second coming. That has to happen. And it is interesting to see the progress that is being made in Bible translation, but I don't think that's what's going to put us over the top. It's what we're going to read here in Revelation 7 and the chapters to follow, where 144,000 Jewish people will preach the gospel across the planet such that, and they must have some kind of linguistic ability that God gives them, because we're told people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are saved during this time. So, once again, what we will see in this chapter and the chapters to follow is it is Israel front and center. Now, if you're using your note-taking outline, I want to begin with God's deliberate pause, God's deliberate pause. Uh, Let me set the immediate context. Again, in chapters 4 and 5, we find ourselves with the raptured church. It was picturing us because we'll be there if you're born again, worshiping the Lord God around the Father and around the Son and in the Spirit. And then in the sixth chapter, it dramatically changes like a shock to the senses where the sealed judgments begin to unfold. And they're so severe that in Revelation 6.16, the people of the earth will say, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So in chapters 4 and 5, we're in heavenly places with scenes of joy In chapter 6, we're brought down to earth where we see terror and judgment, scenes of judgment upon the earth. Now, please, it's important to remember the overall structure of the book of Revelation or it becomes a little bit confusing to you. So let me just review it because my desire is that by the time we're done, you'll be able to see the structure and think your way through the entire book. Um, If you remember, it begins with seven sealed scroll judgments. There's a series of 21 judgments that come on the earth, three septets, three groups of seven. And the first, of course, are the seven sealed scroll. And we studied that in great depth. The first four seals represented the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Then we came to the fifth seal. 
And the fifth seal represents this huge number of saints who are martyred for their faith in Jesus. Then that's followed by the sixth seal, where there are some cosmic changes that happen in the universe. And then between the sixth and the seventh seal, and we're going to see this pattern, same pattern with the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, that between six and seven, whether it's seals, trumpets, or bowls, there's a pause, there's an interlude, almost like God is giving us a chance to, to catch our breath. And He will show us what has been taking place during the time of the seal judgments, what has been taking place during the time of the trumpet judgments. He's going to give us a different perspective. And so in chapter 7, we come to that pause between the sixth and seventh seal, where you meet these 144,000 Jews, and they preach the gospel, and then the seventh trumpet is sounded. And so as you can see on the next diagram, you see six trumpets. The last three are called the woe trumpets, woe, 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 and they are incredibly intense. And between the sixth and seventh trumpet, you will see um, a pause once again. It's a little bit different kind of pause that we will study, but nonetheless, the structure is the same. In the seventh seal are seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet are the seven bold judgments. And so when the six trumpets are finished, we come to this brief pause that we're going to study today in the next few weeks the seventh chapter, then the seventh trumpet is blown, and you read a very interesting statement in Revelation 11, verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And you think the book should end there. But in one sense, chronologically, it brings us virtually to the end of the book. And you'll see it before we're done. Because in the seventh trumpet, are the seven bold judgments, and they happen very fast. They're not timed like, you know, this trumpet is going to uh, last for five months or whatever. They boom, 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 second coming. And so it's an incredibly appropriate statement. So once again on this chart, the first six seals are over, and prior to the opening of the seventh seal, uh, which will bring the seven trumpets, there's a pause, helping us to see what God is doing upon the earth. By the way, this literary pattern is used by God's writers throughout the Bible. You come into the opening chapters of the Bible. In Genesis 1, you see the seven days of creation. The big picture is given, and then God stops in chapter 2, and He details one aspect of the creation. In Genesis 10, you see the table of nations. How do we get all the races in the world? And then God details it in the 11th chapter at the Tower of Babel. We all come from Adam. We're all related. But how do we have an explanation for all the languages and tribes and races? God gives us the answer in Genesis chapter 11. And so this is not an unusual pattern that we are seeing here. And what we're going to see during this time out of sorts, which is going to document what has been happening as these seal judgments has, have been unfolding, what we are going to see is God's mercy. See, God's heart is that people come to know Him. The prophet Habakkuk said, in wrath, O Lord, remember your mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. And God will do that very thing because He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible said by the prophet Ezekiel that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so notice how the chapter opens. After this I saw, 
And John will use that phrase every time he opens with a new vision. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Now, to those who love to criticize and attack the Bible, they will say, there it is, four corners of the earth. Uh, by the way, a phrase used three times in the Bible, twice in the Revelation and in one Old Testament book. And they'll say, John, he's ignorant. He's one of those flat earth cosmologists. He thinks the world is flat. And so the critics will come to this text and they'll say, you poor, poor, stupid little Christians. You have an ignorant apostle who gives you a book who believes that the world is flat with four corners. Can you really believe that angel standing at the four corners of the earth? How silly. Well, to be consistent, that would be like me saying, oh, you poor, poor little pagans. You listen to your weatherman every day, and he talks about the sunset. We all know the sun doesn't set, but the earth rotates. But I wouldn't do that. That would be a cheap shot. We recognize that there are figures of speech. But the critics, because they want to attack the Bible, will often not recognize those figures of speech. So you may be asking if the verses that mention the earth's four corners do not refer to a flat earth, then what do they refer to? I'm glad you asked that question. After this, I saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. So this verse speaks of four angels, four corners of the earth, and the four winds of the earth. In verse 1, the number four appears three times connecting the three groups, and not by accident. The four winds refer to the four directions of the compass north, south, east, and west. And so we use the same expressions today. We say, well, the wind is coming today out of the west. Um, and so the repetition here of the number four for four angels, four corners, four winds, ties them together. And this is an idiomatic expression. And we do similar things today. Like if I call my friend in India, I might say, well, what's happening in your corner of the world today? I don't, I don't mean that he lives in a literal corner of the world. It's just an idiomatic expression. Let's go back to the drawing board. It's an idiom of sorts. Um, and so this idiom is used by John and in other places in Scripture to describe people from every section of the world or every geographical dimension of the earth itself. Uh, the phrase here in 7.1, the ends of the earth is used some 28 times in the Scripture. And again, it's used to refer to the farthest reaches of the earth. And this uh, phrase, the four corners, is used uh, some three times in the Scripture. For instance, in Psalm 67, 7, in reference to the ends of the earth, may God bless us still so that all the ends of the earth will fear Him. Do we mean by the ends of the earth that the world has an edge to it? I hope you don't think that. Obviously, he's referring here to people who inhabit places across the globe. And so this phrase, the four corners, refers to people or geographically to the most distant places across the world. And by the way, while I'm here... I didn't tell you that the place in the Old Testament that it is used, four corners, is in Isaiah. That's the third place, twice in Revelation, once in Isaiah. Why is that significant? Well, let me read to you Isaiah 40, 22. He says, it is he, 
God, Yahweh, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Now, I could have read other verses that affirm the world is round. Ever before modern science learned that the world was round, centuries before in the Old Testament, the Bible affirmed it. The popular science in Columbus's day is that the world was flat, but he was bold enough to sail, not thinking he'd fall off the edge of the world because he read the scriptures that affirmed the world was round. And Isaiah uses the same idiom concerning the four corners of the earth. But here's the point I want to make. If you want to find an excuse as to why the Bible cannot be believed, you'll find one. And some of you who are in high school, you're going to go off to the university and you're going to sit under professors who are going to try to dismantle your faith. Josh McDowell, if he's correct, he says 72% of kids from evangelical homes walk away from Christianity when they get to college. Well, they're not really walking away from Christianity because they never had it to begin with. You cannot renounce the faith and lose salvation. The Bible is clear about that. But it is a sobering thought to consider because the Bible is no longer taught. People are given uh, little idioms as to what the gospel is, false idioms like invite Jesus into your heart but without any substance and no gospel at all. And so they have so-called conversions that are not conversions at all. And that's why they quote unquote walk away. But nonetheless, God's young people need to be equipped and grounded so that when they go to the university, they can stand up and give an intelligent defense for the hope that is within them. Now, let's read all of verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that the wind, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. So, in this passage, you have these four angels who are holding back something. And they're holding back the uh, devastating power of wind. Some of you weathered the last hurricane and even the one before that, and you saw the power of wind. Some of you have been through tornadoes, or you've seen what uh, an earthquake can do in creating a tsunami. And so what God is speaking here of is a natural disaster that He is going to use to bring as a judgment upon the world. And He commands these angels to hold it back, to delay it. Now, you may not know it, but angels are God's servants. Some of you went through my course on angels years ago, and we did a full-blown study on not only God's elect angels, but also those fallen angels called demons. And angels play a wide role in the Scripture. We've already seen them in the fourth and fifth chapter as worshiping. When we go to heaven someday, you will worship alongside of angels. It will be magnificent to watch it. In fact, this morning, in this worship service, there are angels here. You say, I don't see any. They're here. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that when the church gathers, angels come. They're observing your worship today. There's a lot more people here than you actually think. There are angel people here as well. They're persons. They're not made in the Imago Dei. They're different. Humans are unique in that respect, but they have all of the marks of personality, emotion, intellect, and will. So there are worshiping angels and there are fallen angels. When we come to the ninth chapter of the Revelation, we'll see demons who will attempt to demonize the world. There are ministering spirits, the writer of the Hebrews says. 
sent out to render help to those who will inherit salvation. And so the same writer says that there are times when you can entertain an angel without ever even knowing it. Angels are worshipers of the one true God and Son, Jesus Christ. And when we continue our study of Revelation tomorrow, we'll see that angels are also witnesses. They will witness events and they will bear witness of an event. To listen again to today's study entitled Israel Front and Center, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV19. And if you can help support Search the Scriptures with a one-time gift or by becoming a regular SDS supporter, call 877-787-7478 or click the Give button at searchthescriptures.org or on the Search the Scriptures app. Tomorrow, part two of Israel Front and Center. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <laughs>